Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Colin Lowe, Chartered Financial Planner and Managing Director of Kingsfleet Wealth. The recent collapse of Carillion doesn't only mean uncertain job prospects in the immediate future for its employees, but also questions over their pensions, because the company's pension schemes have a deficit of around £587 million. Emma, what's going to happen to the pensions of the 28,000 members of Carillion schemes? Well, the good news is that all the scheme members of Carillion fall under the protection of the Pensions Protection Fund. And it's a life by organisation for defined benefit schemes for companies that have gone bust. What does it cover? The compensation level you will get really depends on your circumstances. So if the company went bust after you had already retired, then the Pensions Protection Fund will pay you 100% of your compensation. For Carillion scheme members, about 12,000 of them had already retired. So they will be receiving that 100% compensation. But if you have yet to retire before your scheme goes bust, then when you get to retirement age, the PPF will pay you 90% of what your pension was worth. And that's subject to a cap. So, for example, if you're age 65, the maximum you'll receive is £34,655. OK, so that's not such great news for many Carillion employees who aren't yet retired. But is this a wider issue that affects other people? Um, I think it is because we had quite a number of high profile blow ups recently with DB members of pension schemes of Toys R Us and BHS, for example, needing the protection of the fund. And the PPF estimates that two thirds of defined benefit schemes are in deficit at the moment. So it could be a concern for quite a few people. Right. So does this mean you should avoid defined benefit pensions or look to transfer out of them? And it's an interesting question, Leonora, but actually the vast majority of pension analysts and experts I spoke to said that generally it's often better to stick with your defined benefit pension. And that's just because of the great benefits that DB schemes offer, you know, guaranteed income for life. If you were to transfer to a defined contribution pension, in many cases, you wouldn't be able to match the same level of income that your defined benefit pension will give you. And also with the insurance of the PPF, if the worst happens, you are still going to get the majority of the income that you were promised. Okay, so you shouldn't necessarily leave your scheme just because it's in deficit. But are there any circumstances in which you should consider leaving? Yes, there could be. For example, it may make sense um, to transfer into a defined contribution pension if you're in serious ill health and an enhanced annuity might pay you a larger income or if you actually are in a very lucky position of having multiple defined benefit pensions and you might want to cash one in, for example, so you can have that extra flexibility. Okay. Now, Colin, um, what's your take on this? Do you think members of defined benefit pension schemes are at great risk? No, I don't think they are. Uh, These are possibly the most highly regulated and closely monitored arrangements in existence at the moment. There are regular reviews carried out by trustees um, who employ actuaries to ensure that the liabilities are fully understood and that the sponsoring employer can either match or fund those. So, no, I don't think they're at great risk at all. Okay, so how reliable is the Pension Protection Fund? Um, I mean, it's obviously sorting out Carillion. This is quite, you know, a big failure, so it's going to eat up a lot of its funds. Do you think it'll be able to cover any other scheme failures if, um, you know, if we see any other blow-ups in the near future? 
Uh, that's difficult for me to say precisely because obviously we don't have access to all that information and there are much bigger brains than mine working on that at the moment. But it is, after all, a government-created lifeboat fund. Uh, it's funded by levies across the pension industry and uh, reading uh, their proposals, they're targeting bringing in a further £550 million in the next tax year. So there are, is quite significant sums going into this and, of course, all the assets from the closed schemes all form part of the Pension Protection Fund as well. So as time goes by, it does build up a significant war chest that can then be used in the future. Okay. So what should you do if you're in a defined benefit pension scheme? How can you gauge as to whether you should think about getting out? Uh, well, I would suggest that it's very important just to keep aware of uh, what's going on with your defined benefit scheme. And there should be a document issued regularly by scheme administrators, which provides details of the liabilities of the scheme and whether it's fully funded. There's very few schemes at the moment that are fully funded, but much of this is down to an accounting uh, issue. And uh, the fact that all the liabilities are assessed now, even though, of course, they're not all payable now, they are payable over time as different people of different ages reach that pension maturity. So it's sometimes to do with the strength of the scheme, but also the strength of the covenant from the sponsoring employer is the crucial thing. Um, now, if you're in a scheme and you're not sure, look online or perhaps approach the administrators and they should be able to tell you more about how well-funded the scheme is. Okay. Um, so what would be grounds for leaving a defined benefit pension scheme? Well, uh, generally, the funding position really isn't one of them. Uh, so I think that's one that we can almost move to one side. I appreciate this is something that people need to be interested in and concerned about, and they do need to take um, some more interest than perhaps they've done in the past. But I would say at the moment, it's not a big issue. Um, I would say everything is really dependent on the individual circumstances. Now, as an advisor who has the ability to transact and make recommendations for people to leave defined benefit schemes, this is a very very, very um, big issue at the moment and the FCA are looking at this advice very, very closely. So there are occasionally situations where perhaps the death benefits available in a defined contribution may be of more value to somebody than those within the defined benefits scheme. There may be greater flexibility for retirement and for the way in which income could be taken because, of course, in drawdown now you can take the funds how you wish. But I would not be expecting someone to achieve better investment returns in total outside a defined benefit scheme than they could typically inside. And of course, the great thing with a defined benefit scheme is it retains the risk in the hands of the employer and the scheme sponsor rather than the individual. Okay, and what would you say the other downsides of leaving a defined benefit pension scheme? Well, I think it's that first thing that we were just saying there about investment risk. You're transferring the risk away from someone who is managing the scheme for you, having that tree check that there's sufficient in the fund, and to pay that through to the end of your life across to the money being in a pot that you are effectively responsible for. And so obviously uh, that transfers the risk from one person to another and, and you would be taking that risk effectively. The other thing just to be aware of is that there has been quite a growth recently in scam investing. So if someone approaches you to move your defined benefit scheme fund, 
I would just be very wary. Um, if it's part of an investment process and a review and it's someone who you know and trust, I would have a lot more confidence in that. But if someone out of the blue approaches you to say you should move your scheme because of X, Y or Z, please be very, very careful. Check that that individual is on the FCA register as an approved advisor. Um, check that they have permissions to do that. And, and actually, one other thing that's just worth saying, that any fund that exceeds £30,000 does need to be signed off by a financial advisor who is authorised to give uh, pension transfer advice. Okay, and I, I think I would add, actually, if somebody calls you out the blue, they're not going to be Absolutely. A, 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 a sort of like a regular financial services firm or financial advisor. If somebody calls you out the blue, there's somebody dodgy. Yeah, Exactly that. And I would say that with yeah. any investment. Do you, do you call people out the blue, Colin? No, no, exactly. no. no, no. Exactly. The, the thing yeah. is, quite frankly, so many independent advisors are just so busy with plenty mm. of other activity at the moment. They don't have the time to be looking through phone books and finding people who've mm. got defined benefit schemes. And it's not how they operate it's anyway. It's just not how they yeah. work. They're mm. seeking people who genuinely want to engage in independent advice or financial advice. And so, you know, we wouldn't want to be approaching people who are comfortable and who have a very clearly defined um, retirement path. Why would we want to change that mm. unless there is something that, that does have some benefit? But that's often triggered by the individual and not by us. Yeah. So uh, bottom line, cold calls are dodgy. I would yeah, say so. And, dodgy, and also yeah. the, the other mm. thing on that is that don't expect an advisor to just sign a form um, mm. these days. Um, we've had people approach us and say, oh, if I transfer my, will you just sign a form and we'll pay a fee? It won't happen like that. If you want advice, that is what you will get. And that advice will cost money. Good. Now, obviously, you and Emma both alluded to the fact there are a few rare uh, and perhaps unfortunate instances where it's actually better to transfer. For example, if you're not very well, don't have long to live. Um, so in that instance and others, if you transfer out for whatever reason, what are the options available? I, I would just... Um just temper one of those things mm. that if you don't have long to live, if you should die within two years, there is a possibility that the value of the fund could be brought back into your estate for inheritance tax purposes. Mm. It's just just a, a, a small print thing that's worth being aware of. Okay. Um, mm. However, uh, yeah, if someone is moving out, as Emma was saying earlier, then moving into a personal pension or a SIP is, is typically the way forward. Um, and then at a later stage, that individual could then utilise income drawdown or, of course, convert to an annuity. Now, now, the only thing about the annuity is that then means converting a fund into a regular fixed income for the rest of an individual's life, which actually is a little bit like staying in the final salary scheme. So mm-hmm. so if annuitisation is the ultimate goal, then again, we come back to the reason why a defined benefit scheme is best to remain in. Thank you, Colin. That was really, really helpful. And also see this week's money section for Emma's guide on how to regularly review your DB scheme to assess its health. Multi-asset funds have been very popular with investors of late, with the Investment Association reporting that the second and fourth best-selling fund sectors in November were mixed investment 20-60% to shares and mixed investment 40-85% to shares. Emma, why are multi-asset funds proving popular? One likely reason is that there's been increased demand um, by financial advisors who are increasingly outsourcing their investment management decisions to multi-asset funds. And that's just because of increased regulation. Okay. And um, is this trend likely to continue? Well, the recent spate of fund launches suggests that there actually is quite a lot of demand for multi-asset funds. So quite possibly. 
right. And you sort of speak of launches. What's coming to market? Um, one example is LF Mitten Balance Multi-Asset Fund, which is launching on the 29th of January. It's aiming for equity-like returns over the long term and has the ability to temper downside. And at the launch, they're expecting it to have around 70% in equities, 20% in bonds and 10% in cash. With the equity proportion, um, the largest geographic exposures will be to Japan, Europe and Asia. Okay, and um, what kind of investors are multi-asset funds suitable for? I think they can be useful for private investors who perhaps don't have the time or knowledge to be able to pick their own investments, or perhaps because they want to use it as a good core holding in their overall portfolio. Perhaps if you've got a very small fund and can't allocate to different funds, mm, yeah, yeah definitely. that's a good solution, yeah. Um, Colin, what do you think of multi-asset funds? Are they a good addition to investors' portfolios? Oh, I co- totally agree with what Emma's just been saying, that I think they're a great place to start a portfolio, or perhaps a great way of just holding a core sense of assets that will just move in many ways in line with the market but often can be done so in a more cost effective way and then of course you can build your more glamorous and exciting and bespoke arrangements around the outside the so-called satellite holdings that's yeah. right core satellite yeah. approach that's mm. a that's a nice way of thinking about it Okay. What don't you like about multi-asset funds? Um, Well, it depends what you're looking for. So just to clarify, there are both passive and active options of multi-asset funds. Passive are a lot lower cost because they are just tracking markets and they tend to rebalance on a more regular basis, often monthly. Um, So... They are perhaps a little bit imprecise, I suppose, is the best way of saying it. They can be relatively costly for the active versions, but then you are paying for someone not just selecting underlying assets, which often is then buying into another investment manager. So you may have a double tier of costs on some occasions, but also the asset allocation is managed by a manager. Uh, If they're passive, as I say, normally they're rebalanced fairly regularly, and that can sometimes be a drag on performance. Okay, just just thinking about the fact you're saying obviously they asset allocate as well as um, kind of choose the individual securities. I mean, really, asset allocation is unique to everybody. And I know these funds obviously come into you get your cautious and you're balanced and you're higher. But isn't it a bit one size fits all? I mean, is that really suitable? I mean, are you the same as another court? If you're cautious, you're the same as another cautious. Isn't it better to have a slightly something a bit more bespoke? How long have we got? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Again, let's just go back to what we we were just saying there. Mm. From a starting perspective, how much knowledge would someone starting in the market have? So if their um, understanding is that they don't want to take huge amounts of risk, then perhaps a cautious portfolio or moving then to balanced and then potentially into uh, adventurous in the future keeping things simple is a good thing and i think sometimes we we love to overcomplicate things but if we want to get people started in saving and investing then having an easy way that they can get into the market is a good thing you're right it is to a degree one size fits all but one of the issues we have to be concerned about is a thing called treating customers fairly that the fca started a few years ago and that is that people should expect to have something which delivers essentially what it does in the end so meeting someone's expectations is critical 
So to that degree, you need something that will keep close to a benchmark. So yeah, is a bit one size fits all. We're not saying, however, that this is the only solution, but that this is very good for either a starting position or a core. Now, what kind of investors are multi-asset funds not suitable for? Well, I think if, for example, you have a particular focus on wanting to invest in a geographical area. So let's say that you're familiar with Europe and you think that there's some great opportunities there and you may want to buy into a specific area in Europe or a specific scenario like China, well, those funds just aren't going to to do that for you. Um, And also those who want to exclude certain asset classes that you may feel the opposite, that that area isn't appropriate for you. Um, The other thing is is maybe ethical investors may not find that this uh, meets their criteria. There are are some ethical multi-asset funds, but really not as many. So that does limit the alternatives. Okay, so basically people, perhaps like quite a lot of our listeners, want to have a bit of a say Mm -hmm. over what goes in, but perhaps some very suitable, perhaps our listeners, if they've got, um, I don't know, son or daughter starting off a lifetime eyes or something, don't want to spend much time few thousand pounds it's a just an easy way to get going i think it is i was at a conference yesterday and Mm -hmm. we were talking about just how for young people sometimes they don't know how to invest in the market they may want to put money away and don't know how to do it and we seem to make it very difficult for them this is a great way in which they can get in and and know that their market is being invested all over the world in lots of different arrangements and uh it's a good starting point we're not saying stay there forever Mm. but let's get you started and then we can move on from there yeah now are there any multi asset funds that you particularly like yeah, so we review ours regularly to uh, to look at what do we recommend to people. So again, we have a passive selection as well as active. So from a passive point of view, um, Legal in General offer what they call their multi-index funds, which uh, covers the world. Uh, Vanguard have their life strategy funds. So those two are relatively low cost. Um, from the active perspective, there are several. Um, Hawksmoor run a couple of funds. They may not be that well known to people. Uh, T. Bailey is another firm that uh, aren't that well known but offer some great active uh, multi-asset funds and Premier as well. Uh, there's some great ones out there. Do lots of research, have a look. And the other thing is look to find the risk profile. I know it's one size fits mm. all, <laughs> but look to find the risk profile that meets with your criteria as well. Okay. And are there, what would be the alternative to multi-asset funds? Well, you can create your own, really. Mm. I mean, that's one other option. Again, if you want to go into passives, then you can buy indices, and those are very, very cheap. So you could buy FTSE All Share Funds um, and, and the like, uh, global equity funds that, that trade on a passive basis. Uh, or, of course, you can buy individual collective funds that represent those global equities and the fixed income assets that perhaps would be incorporated in a multi-asset fund. And again, you can use open-ended funds or investment trusts for that purpose. And you can see what other multi-asset funds are coming to market in this week's funds news. The world, including the investment world, can seem like a grim place at times. But what looks like a bright spot amidst the gloom is the international monetary fund figures that show the world economy is enjoying its biggest period of global growth since 2010. But investors, of course, don't directly buy gross domestic product growth. They buy assets such as equities, which sometimes bear no resemblance to gross domestic product growth, or GDP for short. So, Colin, are markets currently reflecting this growth? 
Well, uh, I'm beginning to think that, yes, this growth is already priced in. After all, if we're talking about it, then fund managers will know about it as well. <laughs> and they've probably known about it on the figures that they've been looking at for several weeks or months. So I agree with you. GDP and stock markets aren't always correlated. If it is in markets and markets are high, does it mean a stock market crash is imminent? Your guess is as good as mine on that one, I think. Or <laughs> I think it's just uh, none of us know. It's always impossible to say. Um, my viewpoint when I'm discussing this with clients is to say we just do not know. We don't know what's going to happen next week, next month, this whole year. Any predictions about the FTSE are simply a finger in the air and a guess, and therefore we don't know. Um, but I think we've got to be reasonable and say to people. Just think what will happen. Will it have an impact on my portfolio? And most importantly, will it have an impact on my standard of living? Okay, so should you be taking steps to protect your portfolio from possible downside? Uh, Yes, I think so. And I think we should do it all the time because you've always got to be thinking what can go wrong? Uh, Where are the risks? And I can remember 2007. I guess this is the side of getting old when you Mm. look back to specific occasions. In 2007, there were many commentators saying that the US could never have a recession again (laughs) because of the symbiotic relationship with with China. And and I can think back to 2000 with the tech boom and, wow, this is great. Technology is going to solve all our problems. The stock market's only ever going up. So when everything sounds brilliant that's the time just to take a step back i'm not predicting a crash not by any means but just take a step back and say if the worst happened if the portfolio that i've invested in fell by 15 20 25% what would happen to my investments what would happen to my lifestyle and and i think all that i would say is put your portfolio in a position where you never have to be a forced seller okay so On that note, is building in downside protection at all necessary if you have a very long-term investment horizon? And for example, you don't need to draw on the income or the growth of this portfolio for decades because it's a pension fund. Absolutely fair point. Yeah, if you've got a hugely long-term investment Mm. horizon and you really do not mind if your portfolio falls by 20%, and I'm not predicting that, I'm just saying Mm. if that's hypothetically where you are, then... No problem. But all I would try and prepare people for, and we've been instituting a very clear policy with our clients, is to say what you may need over the next 18 to 24 months, ensure that it is either in cash or in low volatile assets, so that if there is a correction, you will not be a forced seller. And and it's the story that we just want to get across to as many people as possible. Short-term funds do not expect them to always go up in value. We've seen a, a effectively a bull market for nine, nearly 10 years now, haven't we, a, a, with a few dips and changes but people sometimes fall into this habit of assuming that the market only ever goes up and and that isn't the case so just be prepared okay now you're talking about what people need to do to protect themselves in the very short term um what are the let's say in other circumstances what are the other best ways to protect your portfolio if you suspect volatility is ahead yeah and again i would just agree with what you said earlier that's the key thing that if there is long-term assets that you have you just have to see them go up and go down and that's just what happens with investing so short-term money or something perhaps in the next five years just think about taking some risks down so we've mentioned cash uh, that's obviously secure, but you're not going to earn much on it at the moment. I do have some concerns that bonds, uh, fixed income assets, gilts and so on, aren't the diversifier that they once were because they're increasingly correlated 
um, with equities and they've got very little cushioning built in anyway. Yields are so low that there's not much room for manoeuvre there. So there is one sector called the targeted absolute return sector that's worth looking at. But the caveat on that is every fund in that sector works differently. Mm-hmm. They are, it's a, bu- it's a box of frogs in there. There's all sorts <laughs> of things, isn't it? You just don't know mm-hmm. how it's going to behave. So some funds can go short, so they'll make money on a falling market or falling shares. Some are long only, some run pairs trades or relative trades and all sorts of things. And it's really important that you understand how an investment works before you put money in it. Okay, what I'd say about absolute return funds, ultimately, however it works, what you want to do, to do is to protect your money yes. in whatever way. So you obviously want one that succeeds in doing whatever it's doing. So on that note, are there any absolute return funds that you particularly like because they have shown that, you know, with whatever they do, mm. they mitigate yeah. Downside. Well, the problem will be if I mention some names, and mm. I will mention some names, you may mm. look at those and you'll say, well, they haven't done anything for the last two or three years. Mm. But that's, that's the point, isn't that's it? That's exactly yeah. the point. Yeah. Don't, you know, the past yeah. performance bit isn't the key issue mm. here. What we're saying is how will they perform in different circumstances? Yeah. So we've investigated two or three. We like a fund called Perford, Perford um, Global Total Return, very interesting fund, long only, and, it, and we just like that. Um, then Jupiter Absolute Return is an interesting fund because they can go short on equities and Ruffer have a very interesting vehicle. Is and that again, the Ruffer Total Return fund? Ruffer Total yeah. Return, yeah. yeah. As a house, they are sort of quite um, bearish generally mm. and just prepare for the downside. Mm. So again, it's done nothing really to speak of. But mm. again, it's just a very interesting way in which they believe that they will capture a downturn in the market mm. to create positive returns for mm. clients. But that's, a, I guess that's a point. You wouldn't expect a rise of rising markets, but then hopefully for less of falling market. Just finally, we've said that, well, we can't predict markets, but are there any other things that investors should be worried about other than Will it be a crash in the near term? Yeah. 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 Um, but other than that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in other news. Uh, so, yeah, I, the, the, the thing that I suppose just still concerns us is the amount of debt that we have, both as a, as a country, as a population uh, and globally. So if normality or some degree of normality returns with interest rates, then that will have a huge impact on spending um, in, in developed economies, absolutely huge. Now, if that's the case, what will trigger higher interest rates is increased inflation. And inflation is just that great mystery at the moment. Is it going up? Is it coming down? So if we see signs that inflation is beginning to pick up, interest rates will almost certainly have to go up. If that happens, then it will have a huge impact on an awful lot of investment markets. Okay, something to keep you awake at night. Thank you, Colin. (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, that's all we have time for today. But you can read more on how safe defined benefit pensions are and multi-asset funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.